This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Before we begin, I want to point out that we're coming close to Halloween. And if you're like me, you love all the cool and creepy stuff that goes along with the holiday. So I've decided to share a Halloween treat with you. I'm going to put out a bonus episode next weekend where I'll share a creepy Halloween tale for you to listen to in the dark, around a fire, or we're giving out Halloween treats to those cute trick-or-treaters. But I haven't quite decided what story to tell. So if you have a favorite, send me a tweet at Upon a Crime or message me on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod. And then look for the episode next weekend. And happy Halloween. Thank you once again for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last episode in the series Fatal Fans. In the first three episodes, I covered attacks on two young actresses, Teresa Saldana and Rebecca Schaefer, and one music superstar, John Lennon, by deranged fans. This time, I'll detail an assassination plot on an American president. In researching these episodes, I've been struck by how many ways these cases have connections to each other. And no, I didn't plan this. I had planned the subjects I would cover, but was unaware until I started reading and researching each one that they had parallels to each other. For instance, as I mentioned in episode 14, Robert Bardo learned how to make contact with his victim, Rebecca Schaefer, by hearing how Arthur Jackson had found Teresa Saldana through public records and other means. Bardo also carried a copy of The Catcher in the Rye with him to his crime, as Mark David Chapman did when he gunned down John Lennon. And Bardo and Chapman had been prison pen pals briefly. But even more important than that are the similarities in their behavior, family histories, and psychological makeup. They were products of overindulgent and or mentally ill mothers, demanding and or disconnected fathers. They did not have good relationships with others, sometimes with little or no friends or romantic relationships. Each exhibited suicidal tendencies, often combined with attention-seeking behaviors and fixated on certain subjects, interests, and ultimately the person who would become the target for their anger. They conducted stalking campaigns against their victims, traveled extensively to make contact with them or to gain information, collected weapons, were often unemployed, were sexually inexperienced, and overly dependent on others for their finances and caretaking. John Hinckley fits this profile completely, but he also came from a wealthy family. His privileged life would provide him with unlimited financial resources to carry out his heinous crime. But Hinckley's story contains one more significant difference. While the other fatal fans in our series took their fan obsession to fatal obsession by planning to attack and kill the person they had once admired, Hinckley's plan was more complicated. In order to have the object of his obsession, Jodie Foster, notice him, his plan was to kill a high-profile figure. To prove his love and devotion to her, or merely to become famous, his target would be President Ronald Reagan. Join me for this final episode in the series, Fatal Fans. John Hinckley. John Warnock Hinckley Jr. was born May 29, 1955, in Ardmore, Oklahoma. He was the third child of John or Jack Hinckley Sr. and Joanne. His older siblings were Scott and Diane. Jack was accepted into the Accelerated Naval Officer Training Program before he finished high school. He completed the program at the University of Oklahoma in three years receiving his high school diploma and college degree in mechanical engineering, as well as receiving an ensign's commission. Jack was hardworking and driven. He was also a musician, playing drums in a local band, and served as vice president of his class. 
he naturally would expect excellence from his own children who were not required to do half as much as he had at such an early age. He met and married Joanne in 1946. Joanne became a dedicated wife and mother, keeping a beautiful home and doting on her three children. Jack traveled often as an engineer for Carter Oil Corporation. They also moved often, going from drilling site to drilling site. Jack and Joanne moved 14 times in their first five years of marriage. When their son Scott was born in 1950, they settled in Ardmore, Oklahoma to raise their family. Diane was born three years later, and John Jr. followed two years after her in 1955. In 1956, after 10 years of marriage and 10 years of working for one company, Jack had bigger goals and started his own independent petroleum consulting business. After two years of working around the clock to build the business, Jack realized that in order to make the kind of money he wanted to, he'd need to move to a metropolitan area. Dallas, Texas was a booming oil region, and Jack decided to move his family there for more opportunities. While the move was good financially for Jack's business, it took a toll on Joanne. She'd been happy in the relatively small town of Ardmore, Oklahoma, and Dallas was a culture shock. It was big and crowded and fast-paced, and Joanne's anxiety at being left alone, since her husband was almost always at work or traveling, and caring for three small children was overwhelming for her. She began to suffer from panic attacks. John Jr., only three years old at the time, began to absorb his mother's fears and became anxious as well. He preferred to be home and was very clingy with Joanne. This dependency on his mother would last well into his adolescence. In 1966, now with the success of the business, the Hinckleys moved to the more exclusive neighborhood of University Park in Dallas. While John's older siblings thrived at school and had lots of friends, John was very quiet and kept to himself, preferring to stay close to his mother rather than socialize with the other children. His mother attributed this to shyness, and it suited her to have one child who stayed home, since her two oldest were so outgoing with so many extracurricular activities. She figured he would grow out of it. But things didn't change even when John reached adolescence. He'd played some sports in the lower grades, but by his second year of high school, he'd quit all team activities, had few male friends, and didn't date. When the friends he did have began to date, he lost contact with them as well. Most of the time, he would stay in his room playing Beatles records. He would spend time with his mother and seem to converse only with her. When his father would come home, he would retreat back into his room. John felt his father judged him negatively, and Jack was irritated by how much time his son spent with Joanne. He began to feel resentment towards his father for blocking access to his mother and for his criticism. He knew Jack favored his popular daughter and his older son, who, like him, was studying to become a mechanical engineer. Jack was so proud of this that he had named his corporation Vanderbilt Energy after Scott's alma mater, Vanderbilt University. Jack felt that he was only treating John the same way he had his oldest son, expecting him to excel in school, commit himself to his goals, and work hard to reach them. It had worked for Scott. He just didn't understand what was wrong with John. He blamed it on Joanne coddling her youngest son. But Joanne defended her attentions towards John, saying that if she did pamper him more, it was only to make up for the criticism and constant badgering he received from his father. She felt that rather than helping John succeed, her husband was undermining his self-esteem. John Jr. graduated high school in 1973. He hadn't excelled in school. He preferred listening to music and writing poetry. His father insisted he attend college to earn a degree that would provide him with a financial future. John would have preferred to study music or literature, but Jack insisted he enroll in Texas Tech as a business major. John was miserable in school, being away from home and with no friends. 
Meanwhile, his brother Scott had graduated college and was working for an oil company in Indonesia. Diane was in her last year of college and was engaged to be married once she graduated. Jack decided it was a good time now to relocate with all the children launched. Jack and Joanne moved to Evergreen, Colorado. John interpreted this as a complete abandonment. His father had sent him away from home, and now he no longer had a home to return to. John began his freshman year at Texas Tech in the fall of 1973. Having been completely dependent on his mother for all of his needs, including friendship and emotional support, he now drifted. He continued to be without friends and was uninterested in his studies. He sent numerous letters and made frequent phone calls home. These communications were often to complain about two subjects, his health and his need for money. He was constantly complaining of several ailments, from stomach problems to backaches to colds and flus. He also would whine to his mother about what his parents had done to him, sent him away to where he was sick and miserable. His mother felt guilty and his father, to appease Joanne, would send checks. In April 1976, Hinckley wrote home telling his parents that he had dropped out of school and moved away from Lubbock, Texas altogether. Sorry, he wrote, I hope someday I can make you proud of me. This was a classic emotional manipulation Hinckley would use on his mother, and it usually worked. He didn't tell them where he was going. All they knew was that he had moved out of his apartment and dropped out of school. Even so, his parents made no effort to locate him beyond that. One month later, Joanne received a Mother's Day card postmarked from Los Angeles. He wrote that he was in Los Angeles trying to sell his songs to music publishers. He told them that he'd had a meeting with United Artists who was interested. Hinckley had always been a big music fan. His parents had purchased him an electric guitar when he was only 10. He wanted to become a songwriter like his idol, John Lennon. He then confessed that he had sold the car his father had recently purchased for him to finance the trip. His father was angry about this, but he was able to appease his parents since he seemed to actually be working towards something and because he also shared that he was seeing a girl named Lynn Collins. She came from a wealthy family and they had begun dating seriously. This was everything his father and mother had hoped for. Their socially awkward and unmotivated son had career goals that he was working on and making a success out of, and he had a steady girlfriend. They naturally agreed when he asked them for more money to tide him over until his songs were sold. But in reality, there was no Lynn Collins. She was completely fictional, and of course there was no meeting with United Artists or anyone who was interested in his music. Instead, he'd spent most of his time in Los Angeles at the movies. He'd especially liked a movie called Taxi Driver that had been released in February of that year. In it, Robert De Niro plays an unstable Vietnam veteran named Travis Bickle, who works nights as a taxi driver. He meets a 12-year-old prostitute named Iris, played by Jodie Foster. Dissolution by life in the violent streets of New York, he is desperate to become a hero. He alternately plans to kill a senator who he sees as a symbol of government corruption and to save Iris from her pimp and her life on the streets. Hinckley watched the movie 15 times that summer and identified with Travis Bickle's disillusionment and need to be a hero. But he was most interested in Jodie Foster, the actress. She would play into his fantasies for a very long time after he first saw her in the film. By the end of that summer, Hinckley had become tired of L.A. and wanted to leave. He began calling his parents with frequent complaints about his health. He also told them that his apartment had been broken into and all of his possessions had been stolen. They sent more money. He said he was still working on selling songs to several music publishers and was taking part-time jobs in the meantime to make ends meet. 
they sent even more money. In September, he told them that he had severe ice sting attacks, and that had forced him to leave his job, and that also Lynn had broken up with him. He made reference to committing suicide, but stated it somewhat ironically. His mother became alarmed and told him to come to Colorado, which was his goal all along. Hinckley had become very good at manipulating his parents. Once in Colorado, he had an endless stream of physical complaints, from headaches to backaches, colds, chest pains, and insomnia. He spent most of his time sulking in his downstairs room or moping around the house, listening to records and eating the treats his mother cooked and baked for him to cheer him up. His father insisted he begin looking for work after he'd been home for several weeks. His son's answer was that he was afraid to drive in Denver because of the traffic and unfamiliar roads. Joanne then took it upon herself to chauffeur her 21-year-old son the 30 miles each way from Evergreen to Denver for job interviews. Hinkley was able to secure a job as a busboy in a nightclub. To save his wife from traveling back and forth and to get his son out of the house, Jack rented him a room in a motel across the street from the bar. After five months, Hinkley either quit or was fired. He now began to move around the country, either staying with his parents in Evergreen, spending time in Los Angeles, or traveling to Texas to stay with his sister. He re-enrolled at Texas Tech for a time as well, but he always ended up coming home to stay with his parents in Colorado. Jack now couldn't stand seeing his shiftless son in his home being catered to by his wife. About this time to get away from home, Jack began traveling with a Christian organization, World Vision, to other countries to work on humanitarian relief projects. Joanne traveled with him frequently as well. Unknown to his parents, Hinkley continued his obsession with the movie Taxi Driver and Jodie Foster. He took to emulating Travis Bickle by wearing army jackets and collecting guns. He had also begun collecting photos and articles about Jodie Foster and tracking her movements through fan magazines and talk shows. In 1979, John Hinckley purchased his first firearm, a rifle, in Lubbock, Texas, at the unfortunately named Snidely Whiplash's gun shop. He'd also gained over 60 pounds. A photograph taken at this time shows a much heavier John Hinckley posed with a gun to his temple. He'd also purchased two 22 caliber pistols. Hinckley also became interested in researching the lives and crimes of violent criminals, including mass murderers, hijackers, serial killers, kidnappers, and assassins. Some of the criminals he was most interested in were the Boston Strangler, Lee Harvey Oswald, and Sirhan Sirhan. He also collected books and articles about the Kennedy assassination and the attempted assassination of George Wallace, the Democratic nominee for president, in 1972. In May 1980, Hinckley read in People magazine that Jodie Foster would be attending Yale University in September. Hinckley had been frustrated by the fact that his father would not give him access to his portion of the trust account that had been set up for him and his siblings, even though they had long ago received theirs. Jack felt that John was not responsible enough to be given access to so much cash. Hinckley told his father he needed some of the funds because he wanted to attend a writer's workshop at Yale that fall. His father, hoping this was a sign that he was starting to plan for his future, fronted him the $3,600. He stipulated, however, that when he completed the writing course, he must then return to Texas Tech and complete his degree. He agreed. Hinckley arrived in New Haven, Connecticut and the Yale campus on September 17, 1980. On the 20th of September, he called Jodie Foster, reaching her at her dorm. He spoke with her briefly. He then called for the next three days, at which time she refused to take any more of his calls. 
he continued to visit the Yale campus, lurking near the dorms, hoping to catch a glimpse of her. When he did see her, he was unable to approach her. He left love notes at her dorm. He was ridiculed by the other male students as they began to notice the weird guy who hung around the campus but was not a student. He later wrote about this time. My mind was on the breaking point. A relationship I had dreamed about went absolutely nowhere. My disillusionment with everything was complete. Three days later, Hinckley called his mother to tell her he didn't like the writing workshop, the town, or the students. He had taken the money earmarked for the fictitious writing workshop and purchased a ticket to Washington, D.C. He now began stalking President Jimmy Carter. A week after his arrival at Yale, he once again traveled, this time to Ohio, where he'd heard Carter would be visiting. He just wanted to see how close he could get to the president. He didn't take the guns with him, but went to the convention center in Dayton and shook Carter's hand before heading back to New Haven. His travels increased now and would continue from here forward. He was now intent on reaching and shooting President Carter, this time following him when he traveled to an event in Tennessee. He again decided at the last minute not to shoot him. On his way out of town, he was found to have several guns on him by airport guards. He was arrested, charged with the misdemeanor, and fined $62.50. The police kept his guns, and Hinckley flew back to New Haven without them. He then traveled to Dallas, ostensibly to visit his sister, but also to purchase more guns. He purchased two more twenty-two caliber pistols, plus shells. He finally decided not to shoot Carter, as he was down in the polls and not expected to win re-election. He decided to focus on the new president, who would take office in a few months. He then returned to Colorado. He had been prescribed antidepressants previously, and when he returned home, he took an overdose. He became very groggy and out of it, and his mother became frantic. She insisted he now see a psychiatrist. Two days before his scheduled appointment in late October, Hinckley took an overdose of Valium. He reported this to his mother. Later, psychiatrists would label this as a suicidal gesture, often used as an attention-seeking device. At the end of November, the FBI warned Jodie Foster about an anonymous threat against her that was sent to their office. There's a plot underway to abduct actress Jodie Foster from Yale University dorm in December or January, it read. No ransom. She's being taken for romantic reasons. This is no joke. I don't wish to get further involved. Act as you wish. The university was also warned to take precautions. Jack was on a trip to Africa. Hinckley stayed with his mother until the day before his father was scheduled to return home. He then flew to Washington, D.C. again on November 30th. He spent the month of December stalking President-elect Ronald Reagan. On December 8th, John Lennon was killed by Mark David Chapman in front of his apartment building in New York City. Hinckley traveled to New York to stand vigil with other fans in front of the Dakota building. While he was in New York, he also hired a teenage prostitute. He was trying to play out his taxi driver slash Iris slash Jodie Foster fantasies. He returned home to Colorado in time for Christmas. On January 21, 1981, Hinckley bought a 38 caliber pistol just like the weapon Chapman had used to kill John Lennon. He added this to his collection of guns. Hinckley kept crisscrossing the country from Colorado to D.C. to New York and New Haven. He was still trying to make contact with Jodie Foster. In February, he began stalking other public figures. He went to Senator Edward Kennedy's office in Washington and also considered committing mass murder in the U.S. Senate chambers. The metal detectors he had to cross to gain entry to the building thwarted that plan. 
he considered carrying out an attack on the Yale campus. He also went on a group tour of the White House. Whenever he was in New York, he would seek out underage prostitutes. No one, including his parents, ever asked him where he was going on his travels. It seems they were just relieved when he was away from home and not around to complain about his various perceived ailments or ask for more money. Hinckley continued to see a psychiatrist when he was in Colorado. He had not mentioned his murderous impulses, but he had shared his obsession with Jodie Foster and the connection he'd felt with John Lennon. His doctor didn't consider this serious. He simply viewed his patient as immature and without friends and was using his perceived connections to public figures as pseudo-relationships. Later, the doctor's notes would reveal that in treating Hinckley, he only explored his dependence on his mother and his immaturity. Hinckley had also displayed anger and hostility, but the doctor attributed this to sibling rivalry and the jealousy Hinckley felt towards his more successful older brother and sister. Reviewing the doctor's notes of his meetings with Hinckley, it is obvious that his patient displayed a number of other symptoms, including depression, social isolation, inability to cope with frustration, and hostility towards others. They would have also found his writing interesting had they paid attention. Since he had no friends, he spent hours writing in a journal as well as composing short stories, poems, and songs. One of his favorite stories he'd written was called Son of a Gun Collector, which follows a showdown between a father and a son. Against orders, the son touches his father's prized gun. He's disciplined, but he does it again. The father rages and the son shoots the father, saying, Don't worry, Mama. From now on, I'll be the man of the house. A classic Oedipal scenario. One of his poems reads, This gun gives me pornographic power. If I wish, the president will fall and the world will look at me in disbelief. His doctor recommended biofeedback therapy, as he did for many of his patients. Biofeedback therapy was a popular new therapy during the late 70s and early 80s. In part, it involved training patients to control physiological processes such as muscle tension, blood pressure, or heart rate. It was used to treat varied physical and psychological symptoms. It was thought to be particularly effective to treat symptoms brought on by stress. Biofeedback therapy sessions taught patients relaxation and mental exercises to alleviate their symptoms. Hinckley's parents also took part in his treatment. His doctor encouraged them to create a responsibility contract with their son. On his advice, they decided that he must find a full-time job by the end of February and move into his own apartment by March 30th. In late February, Jack and Joanne left to travel to a stockholders meeting and then a short vacation in Arizona. When they returned on March 1st, John was gone. He left a note saying, Your prodigal son has taken off again to exercise some demons. He did not say where he was going. Less than a week later, the phone rang in Colorado at 4 a.m. It was their son calling from New York. He once again needed them to bail him out. He said he was sick, broke, and hungry. They debated once again if they should help him, but ended up purchasing him a plane ticket to come home. He called the next day saying he didn't have enough bus fare to get to the airport. Jack was livid. When his son arrived on March 7th, Jack met him at the airport in Denver. Before they left the terminal... He laid down the law. You've broken every promise you've made to your mother and me, he said. Our part of the agreement was to provide you a home and an allowance while you worked on becoming independent. I don't know what you've been doing these past months, but it hasn't been that, and we've reached the end of our rope. Jack handed him $200 and suggested he stay at the YMCA. From here on out, you're on your own, he concluded. Do whatever you want to. John was stunned. 
That was the last time he spoke to his son until March 30, 1981, when he received a call from Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. On March 30, 1981, John Hinckley was once again in Washington, D.C. He got a room at the Park Central Hotel, two blocks from the White House. At 11.30 a.m., he checked the paper where the president's schedule was listed daily. He saw that President Reagan was scheduled to speak to union delegates from the AFL-CIO in the ballroom of the Washington Hilton Hotel. Before returning to D.C., he had debated using his last $150 to travel to Yale one last time and commit suicide there. But he'd come up with an alternate plan to get Jodie Foster's attention. Now before he left for the Hilton Hotel, he wrote his last letter to her. Dear Jody, he wrote, There is definitely a possibility that I will be killed in my attempt to get Reagan. It is for this very reason that I am writing you this letter now. As you well know by now, I love you very much. Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you would develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. Besides my shyness, I honestly did not wish to bother you with my constant presence. I know the many messages left at your door and in your mailbox were a nuisance, but I felt it was the most painless way for me to express my love for you. I feel very good about the fact that you at least know my name and how I feel about you. And by hanging around your dormitory, I've come to realize that I'm the topic of more than a little conversation, however full of ridicule it may be. At least you know that I'll always love you, Jody. I would abandon the idea of getting Reagan in a second if only I could win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you, whether it be in total obscurity or whatever. I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something now to make you understand, in no uncertain terms, that I'm doing all of this for your sake. By sacrificing my freedom and possibly my life, I hope to change your mind about me. This letter is being written only an hour before I leave for the Hilton Hotel. Jody, I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give the chance with this historical deed to gain your love and respect. I love you forever, John W. Hinckley. He marked the time of the letter as 12.45 p.m. Hinckley equipped himself with a 22 caliber pistol and six Devastator bullets designed to explode on impact with its target. In his left jacket pocket was a red John Lennon button. In his right, he carried the gun. Approaching the Hilton Hotel, he saw television crews and crowds in the front waiting for the president's arrival. Soon after, he saw Reagan arrive with his motorcade. Hinckley stood just a few yards away. He saw Reagan emerge from the car and turned a wave to the crowd. Later, he would say that the president looked directly at him, and Hinckley waved back. Reagan then walked into the hotel. Hinckley waited in the lobby. After 30 minutes, he debated whether he should continue to wait or leave and return another day. He told himself he'd wait only 10 more minutes. Just a couple of minutes later, there was a flurry of activity signaling the movement of the president. Hinckley ducked outside and got into position in order to see the president's path towards the waiting car. Reagan left the hotel with his entourage at 2.25 p.m. With him were his doctor, Michael Deaver, a senior aide, Press Secretary James Brady, and four Secret Service agents. As he emerged from the hotel, the usual motorcade was waiting in the hotel's curveway, not more than 13 feet ahead. To his left were the usual small knot of reporters, photographers, and onlookers. 
Just seconds before he was to duck into the car, Reagan lifted his arm to wave to the crowd. Instantly, a cracking noise rang out, and Reagan felt himself hurtling down and through the open door of the presidential limousine. At the sound of the first shots, Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy leaped between the president and the shots, spreading his arms wide to create a human shield. He dropped instantly as a bullet hit him in the stomach. A second agent, Jerry Parr, who'd been walking beside the president, grabbed his shoulder and forced him down below the open armored car door. Reagan groaned when Parr pushed him inside and onto the floor of the car. A sharp pain flashed through his chest. He attributed this to Parr's rough handling of him. You son of a bitch, Reagan said half-jokingly. You broke my rib. The limousine squealed away. On the sidewalk in front of the hotel, there was pandemonium. Hinkley had emptied his weapon, getting six shots off in less than three seconds from a crouch position. He held the gun expertly with both hands, moving his aim from right to left, tracking the president's movements. The first bullet hit James Brady and entered into his forehead above his left eye. The second bullet struck police officer Tom Delahanty in the neck. The third bullet narrowly missed the head of presidential aide Michael Deaver and struck a building across the street. The fourth hit Agent McCarthy in the stomach, and the fifth struck the limousine window. If it wasn't for the sixth bullet, Reagan would have emerged without a scratch. Unknown to him or anyone at first, the sixth bullet had ricocheted off the limousine's fender, striking Reagan in the left armpit. If not for the bulletproof window, the fifth bullet would have struck the president on the left side of his head. Agents had only seconds to react. They pushed through the crowd to pounce on Hinckley, who had already been grabbed by a person standing nearby in the crowd. They wrenched the weapon away, which was still in his hands, and forced him to the ground. The normal protocol after a threat on the president was to get him as quickly as possible to the White House, the most secure place to take the commander-in-chief. If that procedure had been followed this time, it is very likely that Reagan would have died. Luckily, as Reagan turned to speak to Parr in the limousine, the agent noticed bright red froth and blood filling the corners of his mouth. He knew at once that the president had been shot, and it was a life-threatening lung wound. He immediately ordered the driver to head for the emergency room of George Washington University Hospital. Rawhide not hurt, he radioed to an agent in a car behind them, using the president's code name. He was deliberately trying to throw eavesdroppers on the Secret Service frequency off track. He hoped the other agent would realize the ruse, and once he saw that the presidential limo was headed away from the White House and towards the hospital, he did. He called ahead to the emergency room to prepare them. A white phone rang on the emergency room desk, signaling a White House extreme response alert. The voice on the other end merely said, The presidential motorcade is en route to your facility. By the time Reagan arrived, one fully equipped bay was ready to receive him, while another was set up for James Brady. The second bit of luck Reagan had that day was that the bullet that had hit him had first struck the fender of the car and exploded on the metal instead of inside Reagan's body. It then had continued its trajectory, spinning into his chest with such surgical precision that Parr, feeling him all over for the wound, could not detect any sign of the bullet's entry. They arrived at the emergency room entrance at 2.35 p.m., only 10 minutes after the shooting. Oddly, there was no wheelchair or stretcher to receive him. Reagan then insisted he walk in of his own accord. Parr allowed him to do so, sensing it was important to him. Immediately as he crossed through the door, the president's knees buckled and his eyes rolled up. He could not take in enough air. The emergency team swung into action, picking him up and laying him on a cart. He was losing blood internally at an alarming rate. 
When a nurse lifted his arm to insert another intravenous line, the bullet hole was finally discovered. His systolic pressure had dropped by half. He had lost 3,500 cc's of blood, well over half his total supply. Five units were pumped in to keep him alive. Nancy Reagan arrived as they were wheeling her husband into surgery. Amazingly, he was still conscious and even jokingly said to her, I forgot to duck. The bullet had deflected off of a rib and entered behind his heart. It would have to be removed to stop the bleeding. The surgery was difficult. It took me 40 minutes to get through that chest, Dr. Aaron the surgeon said. I have never in my life seen a chest like that on a man his age. President Reagan, at 70 years old, was extremely physically healthy with a muscular frame. Another 20 minutes was spent feeling for the bullet which lay so deep in his lung tissue that it had to be tracked with a catheter and squeezed out. The bleeding stopped soon after. He had sailed through surgery, the doctor said. He regained consciousness at 7.30 p.m. The next morning, White House staffers brought him a bill to sign in his hospital room to demonstrate that the president had all his faculties and was still able to meet his duties. I should have known I wasn't going to be able to avoid a staff meeting, he joked. He was released from the hospital on April 11th, spending a few more days than anticipated to clear up an infection that had arose. A full dose of antibiotics was all that was needed. His recovery was determined complete by his doctors by the following October. The other three men, the police officer and the two agents, would also recover. Unfortunately, James Brady was not so lucky. He had survived the shooting, but had received a serious head wound that would leave him permanently disabled. He was in such critical condition that the media mistakenly reported that he had died. His surgeon, annoyed, commented, No one told me and the patient. Brady was partially paralyzed and would need a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He also had temporary deficits in his memory and thinking. Hinkley was taken into custody without injury. He was taken to the Metropolitan Police Department. He seemed very aware of his situation and in control of his emotions. Detectives reported that he displayed a full range of appropriate emotions for the situation he was facing. He did, however, ask if the shooting had been televised. He noted the television cameras in front of the hotel. He then asked if they thought the coverage would preempt the Academy Awards, which were scheduled to air that night. His parents obtained the best defense attorneys they could find to represent their son. His attorneys made two attempts to strike a plea agreement and avoid a trial. They proposed that their client would plead guilty to the charges in exchange for a Justice Department recommendation that he be permitted to serve the sentences on each count concurrently instead of consecutively. Consecutive sentences would mean a life sentence. Concurrent sentences would make him eligible for parole in 15 years. The Justice Department was not willing to negotiate with the would-be presidential assassin. When they rejected the offer the second time, Hinckley's attorneys entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Now the determination needed to be made. Was John Hinckley insane at the time of this crime? Psychiatric assessments first had to be made. The psychiatric experts for the prosecution had no doubt that Hinckley was a troubled man. They agreed that he had a narcissistic personality disorder, but that and his symptoms held up by the defense, social isolation, abnormal dependence on his mother, hostility towards his father, his hypochondria and attention-seeking behavior, his interest in violence and his fantasies about an unattainable love interest, did not mean that he was clinically insane and therefore not responsible for his actions. 
The test of insanity by the legal definition in the District of Columbia at that time was based on the American Law Institute's model penal code and the so-named Bronner Rule. The Bronner Rule defines mental illness as any abnormal condition of the mind, regardless of its medical label, which substantially affects mental or emotional processes and substantially impairs the defendant's behavior controls. Therefore, a defendant cannot be held responsible if, because of his mental illness, he, quote, lacks substantial capacity either to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. The Bronner rule is more difficult to determine as it is not as clear-cut to prove or disprove. The prosecution had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Hinckley's acknowledged mental defects had nothing to do with the shooting of the president and three other persons. If a reasonable doubt remained, the jury was instructed to find him not guilty by reason of insanity. The much simpler McNaughton rule requires that two questions be answered to determine guilt. First, did the defendant know what he was doing when he committed the crime? And second, did he understand that his actions were wrong? Mental illness doesn't matter so long as the defendant was aware of the moral consequences of his actions. The defense pointed to Hinckley's behaviors as delusional, thus painting him in an insane light. He went to Hollywood to sell his music, had made up a girlfriend, fancied himself in love with a celebrity he'd never met, etc. The prosecution countered by stating that these behaviors were merely either romantic hopes and dreams, and alternately, manipulations Hinckley used to gain attention and money from his parents. The defense also made a lot of hay about Hinckley's imitation of Travis Bickle, saying that in his delusional mind, he was Travis Bickle, and so believed he would save the teenage prostitute Iris, a.k.a. Jodie Foster, by killing a government official. Hogwash, the prosecution countered. While he may have wished to be like Travis Bickle, he never called himself Travis Bickle, but very well knew he was John Hinckley, signing even his final letter to Foster with his true name. He also never referred to her as Iris, only as Jodie. He didn't go to New York to find her, but to Yale, where he knew the real person was attending college. So, the prosecution concluded, he did know the difference between fiction and reality. The prosecution attorneys also believed Hinckley was manipulating psychiatrists and faking a mental illness. They even questioned whether he might have been coached by his defense attorneys. It seemed as if Hinckley's knowledge of schizophrenic symptoms and his references to the influence taxi driver had on him increased after he'd started meeting with his own psychiatrists. Now he said he was not sure if his fictional girlfriend Lynn was real or not. He also added the claim that he'd wanted to kill the president so that he and Foster could move into the White House together. All this, the prosecution believed, was contrived to bolster his insanity defense. Four psychiatrists and one psychologist for the defense claimed he was insane. Three psychiatrists and one psychologist for the prosecution claimed he was sane. The jury was, no doubt, overwhelmed and confused by all the contradictory claims. Nevertheless, they deduced that there was a reasonable doubt about Hinckley's sanity. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity on June 21, 1982, and was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. for treatment. Soon after, Hinckley wrote that the shooting was, quote, the greatest love offering in the history of the world, and he was disappointed that Foster didn't reciprocate his love. At St. Elizabeth's, he was evaluated and put on antidepressants and antipsychotics. His symptoms of depression soon lifted, but he continued his attention-seeking and narcissistic behavior. He asked for increased privileges, including being allowed to go into the city one day per month and to travel unaccompanied to Washington, D.C. His requests were denied. 
1986, he was granted a 12-hour pass to visit his family during the holidays. His parents had moved to Williamsburg, Virginia to be closer to their son. This was the son who they'd tried their best to avoid and even hide. One neighbor in Evergreen, Colorado, said she didn't even know John existed until he shot the president. He was now their first priority. Hinckley was tailed by the Secret Service during this visit to his parents' home. A few months later, the hospital notified the court that they recommended Hinckley be allowed to visit his family off the grounds for the Easter week, this time without a hospital escort. In the doctor's opinion, Hinckley was no longer a danger to himself or others. The government attorneys who'd prosecuted the case strongly disagreed. We do not believe that anyone who tried to nullify a national election with a bullet deserves the privilege of moving freely in civilized society, they wrote. As the doctor's psychiatric evaluation and conclusions, they reminded them that Hinckley had had psychiatric treatment before the shooting. If psychiatry was capable of predicting Mr. Hinckley's future dangerousness, there would never have been the need for a trial in this case, they concluded. Ouch. A hearing was held to determine his suitability for release, even a temporary and limited one. But the hearing would quickly become an embarrassment to the hospital and his doctors. While they tried to show that Hinckley had changed, he was remorseful and felt very badly about Mr. Brady, they reported, and he now had a loving relationship, having connected with another patient and fallen in love. Shocking facts about Hinckley's activities now came to light. First of all, the patient who was his girlfriend was a woman who had shot and killed her own seven-year-old daughter. In addition, Hinckley had become pen pals with several people, including Ted Bundy and Squeaky Fromm, the woman who had attempted to assassinate President Gerald Ford. Hinckley had also requested Charles Manson's address. His room was searched and 20 photos of Jodie Foster were found hidden there, even though his doctors had reported that he no longer had any interest in the actress the hospital quickly pulled their request for this holiday release. Hinckley's acquittal by reason of insanity spurred the public to action against such defenses. As a consequence, the United States Congress and a number of states revised laws governing when the insanity defense may be used by the defendant in a criminal prosecution. Idaho, Montana, and Utah abolished the defense altogether. In the United States, prior to the Hinckley case, the insanity defense had been used in less than 2% of all felony cases and was unsuccessful in almost 75% of those trials. Public outcry over the verdict led to the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984, which altered the rules for consideration of mental illness of defendants in federal criminal court proceedings. What the public and juries came to understand more clearly was that just because somebody commits an act that most people would consider crazy— whether that is killing your own child, shooting up your workplace, or attempting to assassinate a president, it doesn't necessarily mean you are insane. Emotionally disturbed, perhaps, but it might not meet the criteria for legal insanity. Secret Service agent Jerry Parr, whose quick actions saved the president's life, left the agency and became a pastor. He believed that God had directed him that day and that he had fulfilled his mission to save the president. He died in October of 2015. Agent Tim McCarthy recovered from his injuries he sustained when he had made himself a human shield between the shooter and the president. He received the NCAA Award of Valor in 1982. He later became the chief of police in Overland Park, Illinois. Officer Tim Delahanty also recovered, but was forced to retire from the police force due to his injuries. Jodie Foster was hounded by the press for a time after Hinckley's obsession with her was made public. 
She has only spoken twice publicly about the assassination attempt and has been known to leave interviews when her request not to speak about it is not honored. She went on to have a long and successful acting career in movies, including in The Silence of the Lambs, Contact, and most recently Money Monster. She was nominated for a Best Actress Award for Taxi Driver and has since won two Best Actress Oscars for The Accused and Silence of the Lambs. Foster came out publicly as a lesbian in 2007. She and her longtime partner, Sidney Bernard, have two sons together. She has been married to Alexandra Hedison since 2014. James Brady suffered from his injuries for the rest of his life. He was confined to a wheelchair, but along with his wife, Sarah, became an important advocate for gun control legislation. They lobbied for background checks for handgun purchases, as well as assault weapons restrictions. The Brady Handgun Violence Protection Act, more commonly known as the Brady Bill, was enacted in 1993. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Bill Clinton in 1996, the highest civilian award given in the United States. James Brady died in 2014. The medical examiner ruled it a death by homicide, caused by the wounds he had received over 30 years earlier. Hinckley could not be charged with this death, however, having been found not guilty in 1982. In 1999, John Hinckley was allowed to leave the hospital for supervised visits with his parents in Williamsburg, Virginia. He was granted longer unsupervised releases in 2000. Again, he was found with materials about Jodie Foster. This time, he had smuggled them in after his off-ground passes. His future privileges were then revoked. Supervised visits began again in 2004. In December 2005, a judge ruled that he could now have visits home supervised only by his parents, that could last three and four nights at a time. John's father, Jack Hinckley, passed away in 2008. In 1983, he had sold Vanderbilt Energy and started a mental health foundation to bring awareness to those suffering from mental illness and to support their families. He and his wife, Joanne, wrote a book titled Breaking Points about their son, John, and mental illness that was released in 1985. By 2013, Hinckley was allowed to spend about half of each month away from the hospital at his mother's home. He was also allowed to have a driver's license and was required to carry a cell phone equipped with GPS tracking so his whereabouts could be monitored. He was prohibited from speaking to the news media. On September 10, 2016, Hinckley was released from St. Elizabeth's permanently at the age of 61. His release is supervised by the court and he is required to have ongoing psychiatric treatment. He now lives with his 90-year-old mother, Joanne, near Williamsburg, Virginia. Thanks for listening to this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. To give feedback or suggest show topics, you can find me on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter at Upon a Crime. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and rate and comment if you like it. Until next time... Be good to one another.